Welcome, Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Jack Sanker. New Year, same old story. Businesses are merging. People are being scammed. Judges are ruling. Jurors are falling asleep. First-year associates are planning to change the world. And most of all, the wheels of justice keep turning. Here to ring in the new year and to guide our audience through the usual ups and downs of our justice system is, like always, Jack Sanker from Amundsen Davis, along with my dear co-host and partner, Luke Benke. Luke, what do we got today? Our college athletes' employees a recent decision out of California says maybe. And tiny cigarette butts could be a big problem for tobacco companies. And here's what I got. Tracking where firms have expanded their geographic footprint or entered into new markets may offer some insight on the future of legal markets as a whole, according to a recent Law360 report. And an update on some new opioid litigation. Municipalities are suing the consulting firm McKinsey & Associates over their role in promoting and advertising different opioids. All that and more, here's what you need to know. According to Reuters, the Los Angeles regional head of the National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, issued a finding of merit in an unfair labor practice charge brought by student athletes against USC, the NCAA, and the Pac-12 Athletic Conference. The finding of merit was based on a determination that USC, the Pac-12, and the NCAA as joint employers, quote, have maintained unlawful rules and unlawfully misclassified scholarship basketball and football players as mere student athletes rather than employees entitled to protections under our law, close quote. Now, how did we get here? In September 2021, the NLRB's top lawyer, Jennifer Abruzzo, issued a legal opinion asserting that college athletes should be classified as employees and thus protected by U.S. labor law when providing services that generate profits through athletic activities that their schools control. Now, that memo put colleges and universities on notice that the NLRB's 32 regions would support college players' valid organizing efforts, which effectively invited athletes to unionize. So where do we go from here? The parties can either settle this dispute or the regional director is going to prosecute the athlete's case on their behalf before an administrative law judge. After that, an appeal to the full NLRB could determine whether USC, the NCAA, and PAC-12 are employers under labor law. Now, Jack, as a world-class intramural athlete yourself, what are your thoughts? Are college athletes employees? I think that this has been trending in this direction for quite a while. If I remember, there was an attempt at um, college athletes unionizing at, uh, I believe it was Northwestern a few years ago. Um, so this, it doesn't really surprise me. I, I'd be curious to see as to you know who specifically the employer is going to be, if it's the conference, the school, um, or the, you know, the NCAA. Um, in terms of the liabilities associated with that, I, I, whoever's going to be bearing the cost for the different types of insurance and all the benefits and stuff that are going to be guaranteed under the different state and federal laws. It's going to be quite expensive. So uh, the ruling on this is, I think, going to be um, pretty significant financially for the future of collegiate sports. Yeah. And you wonder, I mean, it's easy to, um, to think about these things when you're talking about athletes at USC or Ohio State or Texas or these major universities that have uh, football programs that pull in massive amounts of money. Um, but 
you know, two things. What about those schools, you know, I don't know, Kent State or or Miami of Ohio or or Whitewater for that matter in Wisconsin, a division uh, two or three school. What about those athletes uh, and those programs that don't pull in that kind of money? Uh, Where's that going to come from? Um, And the other thing is, what about those sports that aren't as profitable as football? I mean, you know, baseball, for example, you know, one of the reasons that Wisconsin doesn't have a team is because it can't, you know, make money on baseball. So what do you do with those sports that don't, you know, that don't pull the same kind of money in? Um, I, you know, I, I think those are all questions that that you've got to answer when you're talking about those that we've traditionally considered student athletes um, as employees. Yeah. And, and I think we've covered on the show before, uh, and I, I don't remember what episode, but we, we definitely have talked about the um, different lawsuits and legal challenges to the certain forms of employment that a lot of like the gig economy uh, tends to take on. So like the independent contractor status of say an Uber driver or, uh, um, you know, delivery, et cetera. And, you know, I, I think it would be a weird outcome if college athletes are you know, W-2 type employees and Uber drivers are not, um, that that's just going to be a weird outcome that I, I don't know that, you know, set aside the legal reasoning behind it. It just doesn't feel like that is going to be the final say as to how this all shakes out. Yeah, great point. And, you know, one thing that separates Uber drivers, for example, from college athletes is, you know, these student athletes are getting, uh, partial or full scholarships. Um, so, you know, what's the value uh, of that education um, and how does that sort of enter the equation? I don't know the answer, uh, but it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting situation and it's in its early stages at this point, um, but it's not difficult to see where this is going to end up. Yeah. I mean, the labor laws that we're talking about here are in, in many cases, you know, New Deal era uh, legislation that is, you know, as we see, struggling to adapt to the modern working arrangements. So that's the job of the administration and the administrative law judges to kind of fit that square peg into a round hole. Up next, there's an old saying that when a town only has one lawyer, he's unemployed until a second lawyer shows up. And that sentiment seems to be that where there's more lawyers, there's more legal work, which attracts more lawyers. Anecdotally, that tracks with my experience. And a recent Law 360 report highlights the growth of law firms in four major cities, Miami, D.C., Chicago, and Houston. Now, for Miami, the driver of migration of these large law firms is connected uh, primarily to proximity to Latin America, according to Joseph Ankes, the president of Ankes Consulting, who's referenced in the piece, quote, This is primarily due to two factors, geographic desirability and an expansion of emerging legal practices that have flourished, Anka said. Today, Miami is well known in some technology, data data privacy, and crypto spaces, as well as in international finance, construction, and private equity. When firms seek to open here, they start with one, two, or three of these areas and then expand to include trusts and estates, finance, bankruptcy, data privacy, and cryptocurrency, he said. Unquote. Anecdotally, Uh, as 
speaking as primarily a construction attorney, I can tell you that the amount of construction related work coming out of South Florida is immense. Now, for D.C., the primary drivers of growth were establishing a presence for regulatory practices and practices that involve the federal government, such as investments, <clears throat> such as investigations and enforcement. Dan Binstock, a partner at the legal recruiting firm Garrison and Sisson, said in Houston, the biggest draw is somewhat pr predictable proximity to the energy sector. There's also the pro-business climate of tax breaks, et cetera, to account for in Texas. And there's booming mergers in tech, finance, and other markets that are drawing firms from across the country. Quote, the law firms want a slice of the pie, and it's a very large pie, says Jody Klossman of the Houston-based Klossman Legal Recruiters. In my 30 years of recruiting in Houston, I've never seen such a robust market, unquote. Now, in Chicago, my home turf, we've seen a growing venture capital culture as well as tech investments by companies like Google and obviously tons of construction. This isn't in the article, but I will add to the discussion that the construction industry and everything adjacent to that in Chicago has been red hot. The West Loop Fulton Market area of the city is on track to be larger than downtown Austin, Texas, when all of the permitted construction is done. It's one of the fastest growing downtowns of any city in America, according to the 2020 census. And our construction group here at Amundsen Davis has been up to its eyeballs for the past three years with work. Zatin Atassi, a Chicago-based legal recruiter, anticipates that more firms without a presence in Chicago will look to expand in Chicago soon. Specifically, she believes that growth may come from through more mergers with existing Chicago firms. By the way, that's what happened with our firm, formerly Smith Amundsen. We merged with Davis Coolthow, and now we're Amundsen Davis. Going back to the piece, quote, law firms are attracted to the city's robust client roster and the ability to charge premium billing rates, Tassi said. The cost of living in real estate is also significantly less than its coastal counterparts in, say, California and New York, which makes it easy for firms to attract talented lawyers from across the country, unquote. So this probably won't surprise people who follow macroeconomic trends much, but I think the migration of large amounts of attorneys is probably a lagging indicator of market trends. Attorneys are following the money, so to speak, not striking out to start new markets on their own generally. But I think the investment in the cities does indicate that there's probably some permanency in these markets that grew during the pandemic in these cities and in the post-pandemic environments. Luke, what do you think? Yeah, I think that I think money is a, a driver for uh, for these attorneys, and I also think that the cities you mentioned are are vibrant, cool places for people to live. And so, it doesn't surprise me that uh, these are the markets that are attracting uh, younger lawyers. That said, uh, you know, I practice in uh, a smaller market than the the four that you mentioned, uh, and love it. And so, uh, there's. There's definitely a um, a spot for um, for lawyers who don't want to be um, big city, uh, big firm lawyers. But again, uh, you know, follow the money, right? It doesn't it doesn't surprise me that uh, waves of of um, lawyers are moving towards those metropolitan areas, um, given you know what the firms you mentioned, you know, kind of what they pay. Up next, and following up on a story that we did about a year ago, it was episode three. Um, we've covered it intermittently in between now and then. Also, um, 
the legal actions surrounding the opioid crisis with municipalities and state governments, uh, most of, mostly on the East Coast, but in this particular case in New Jersey, New York, I think also Massachusetts, that have been suing opioid manufacturers, pharmacies, different marketing agencies, things like that, usually under a public nuisance theory for essentially pushing opioids onto the market irresponsibly in such a way that's going to cause or contribute to the opioid epidemic that we have. Now, updating that story, there is a report from the Tampa NPR outlet, which is WUSF Public Media uh, out of Northwest Florida, which reports that these Northwest Florida counties and cities, including Tallahassee, Pensacola, Miami-Dade, filed lawsuits against McKinsey and Company, an international consulting firm, if you've never heard of it, for its role in marketing and rolling out the supply of oxycodone to the U.S. population. Quoting from the piece, quote, McKinsey knew of the dangers of opioids and of Purdue's prior misconduct, but nonetheless advised Purdue, by the way, Purdue is the company that manufactures oxycodone, nonetheless advised Purdue to improperly market and sell oxycodone supplying granular sales and marketing strategies and remaining intimately involved throughout implementation of those strategies, the lawsuit said. McKinsey's actions resulted in a surge in sales of oxycodone and other opioids that fueled and prolonged the opioid crisis, unquote. Now, the complaint claims that McKinsey is guilty of unjust enrichment, racketeering, public nuisance, and while the plaintiffs are claiming damages in the form of the cost of medical care provided by the public to addicted patients, public expenses spent on child care for addicted parents, criminal justice expenses, and other public expenditures related to the crisis. Generally, I just think it's interesting when I see municipalities try to claw back public expenditures from private actors. There's certainly a basis for that, but generally you don't see it at this scale. And the lawsuits, for what it's worth, have so far been fairly successful against, for example, the Sackler family, uh, the other companies in the opioid supply chain, and McKinsey seems next in line to have to shell out a substantial settlement for whatever role it played in the opioid crisis, if that could be substantiated. <laughs> yeah, it's a, t- it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough discussion because it's like, yeah, you know, when an oil company spills oil, they got to pay for these cleanup costs. Um, and I think everybody agrees like, yeah, you got to do that. But I think these discussions are a lot closer to the line of like, well, I don't know that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, McKinsey's not a... They're not a law firm, you know. Um, it, it's kind of one of those things where, like, I mean, imagine a, uh, it would never happen, but imagine a law firm getting sued for advising a client, you know, to do exactly one or the other. It, it, it does seem a bit tenuous, although, insofar as they're involved in like marketing and sales, and they had they, they you know knew or should have known that this was going to be a massive public health issue. I mean, I guess, yeah, I, I, I don't. It, you know, I, I, I think the case will probably settle. I think these municipalities will probably get some money just based on what I've seen in the other lawsuits. You know, it's not a waste of time. It's, it's not frivolous, in my opinion. Uh, but it is a bit tenuous to blame them for um, all of this. This this is a little bit different, I would think, right? Of course, we're not privy to those internal discussions. But it's like, does a consulting firm need to uh, like get a bunch of medical doctors and you know sit them around a table and be like, oh, hey guys, you know opioids are are bad for us. You know when everybody thought that opioids were all the rage, um, and we're not going to take this. We're not going to provide a service to this company um, because what they're doing is, you know, arguably bad. When nobody was saying that it was bad. I mean. That, I think that's the that's the part of this story that really gets me. It's like, man, a consulting firm is going to have to pay damages. I get that maybe Purdue has to, 
because they're the ones that develop the product. But like the firm that marketed this is going to end up paying damages. I mean, you're providing a service. And Jack, you're right. It's like, are we going to sue, you know, like lawyers that defend criminals for, 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 um, you know, giving them their due process. I mean, that's, that's insane. Right. I mean, that's like what you do in Russia. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, if I'm going to, I'll do what I guess people call, uh, steel manning the, the argument here, you know, the argument is that Purdue and it's, you know, subsidiaries and the people around it, um, cook the books. I, and I'll, you know, allegedly, but cook the books in such a way as to convince the general public and the people around them, prescribing doctors, for example, that this stuff was harmless. Um, that seems to be the the general like consensus argument here, and that's why Purdue needs to get in trouble in one way, shape, or form. But on the other hand, McKinsey was hired to sell the product that was FDA approved. It's really not their role to second guess what the doctors have said, what the regulators have said, you know, even though, even allowing for the possibility that uh, the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma and everyone, like I said, cooked the books in one way or another, it's really not McKinsey's role to do that. Now, were they more intimately involved in the process? That's what the allegations are. Um, And I think that the allegations, you know, seem to imply that McKinsey was involved in that, uh, book cooking, if you will. Um, but it's, it's hard to say. Uh, and I, you know, it'll probably never come out. The case will probably settle and that'll be the last we hear of it. If I had to guess. Yeah, you're right. If there's, if you, if they can produce some emails or something where Purdue is like, boy, this is, this is slightly better than cyanide, you know, uh, but you guys got to sell this stuff and, and they're saying, yep, no problem. We'll peddle whatever you want. Maybe you got a case, but it just seems hard to believe that, um, you know, that, that, that sort of information was shared with your, with your marketing firm. Next up, tiny cigarette butts could be a big problem for tobacco companies. Reuters reports that the city of Baltimore filed what it called a quote, first of its kind, close quote, lawsuit against tobacco companies, Philip Morris, Altria Group, and others over cigarette butt litter arguing that Big Tobacco is responsible for the discarded filters that cost millions to clean up every year. The lawsuit filed in Maryland State Court alleges that the tobacco company's refusal to use biodegradable cigarette filters or to add warning labels about the dangers of discarded filters contributes to an estimated $5.3 million uh, in annual cleanup bills, which is paid primarily by the city. The legal hook for the city's lawsuit is public nuisance, trespass, and various health code violations. And the city is seeking not only costs of cleanup, but also damages for lowered property values and environmental harms. Now, Jack, from a 30,000-foot view, I get it. One party wants to be reimbursed for cleaning up the mess caused by another. Perhaps the most clear example of this is forcing oil companies to pay for cleanup costs following an oil spill. I got to believe that almost everyone is on board with that. But the reason I selected this story is because I've got two interrelated questions that are applicable to virtually every business that manufactures something, regardless of whether you're a big publicly traded company or a small mom and pop shop. The first question is, where is a logical stopping point? 
Are we going to trace every piece of litter back to its origin and demand payment from the company that manufactured, packaged, or sold the product in the first place? I mean, if there's plastic at the bottom of the ocean, there's trash everywhere. Is New Orleans going to sue Hershey in Pennsylvania when it finds a candy wrapper blowing in the street after Mardi Gras? Is Madison going to sue Solo Cup after a college football game? Or let's be honest, any night there's a college party in Madison, which for those of you who haven't been is every night. And the second question is, what is government's function? I think we'd agree at its core, government provides services that a civilized society needs to operate. Talking about paved streets, clean water, safety through emergency responders, and I think trash and refuse pickup. Presumably, the people using these products that the city is cleaning up are at least in part its citizens. Are the product users responsible for tossing their cigarette butt or Hershey wrapper or Solo cup somewhere other than the trash? Are trash collectors like Waste Management, a publicly traded company, responsible when a plastic grocery bag falls out of its truck? Is holding a private company responsible for what is arguably one of government's functions, in other words, one of the reasons we all pay our taxes, the right way to go? I think the answer to both of these questions is somewhere in between. On the one hand, forcing oil companies to pay for cleanup costs, and on the other, forcing Hershey to pay for stray wrappers blowing along the highway. What do you think? Should cities be allowed to collect cleanup costs from private companies? Tough to say. Um, and it, it's a, you know, it's it's really can be a bit of a cop out to, to on one hand, dwell on the slippery slope side of this where we could say, well, you know, cigarette companies now, what next? And then the examples you gave. Um, on the other hand, uh, when there's, for example, like a concert on public grounds, like frequently the the organizer of the concert or whatever is, is going to have to pay some fee for cleanup associated with, you know, garbage, et cetera, things like that. Um, I think really what it comes down to is, you know, was this a, a, a kind of negative externality or was it the intended purpose, right? The, the tobacco manufacturers are not manufacturing things so that you can throw them on the ground. Um, that seems to be what people do with them, but they make, they make cigarettes so that you could smoke them and people like to smoke them and it's legal to do that. And what people do after the fact, I think seems to be really out of the hands of the tobacco company. You know, it's, it's now at least one degree of, of separation removed from what they have in their control. Um, you know, there's, yeah, you could throw the cigarettes on the ground. You could also, uh, throw the cigarettes in the ocean. You could grind up the cigarettes and turn it into coffee. You could do whatever that you want. I mean, that's, I don't think that any of that stuff really um, should fall on the uh, responsibility of the manufacturer. Now, this is uh, one of the times, this is again, we, we mentioned the um, public nuisance theory of liability. Now, we mentioned it in uh, our last episode. Um, it's come up in the uh, most I think famously recently in the opioid lawsuits, that seems to be the the way in which um, municipalities are going after, uh, like we covered before, the Sackler family and um, Purdue Pharma, things like that, for the negative externalities caused by the marketing and selling of the opioids, that uh, Oxycontin, things like that. Um, it's one of those things where, like, you where you kind of get a sense that there's a trend, maybe among. Uh, um, I guess, I guess, you know, 
states, attorneys general, prosecutors, that they've caught on to this idea of like, hey, this public nuisance theory actually has some legs. and We can kind of apply it to basically any number of problems that we have and the courts aren't throwing it out. So let's just, you know, anytime we have something that we want to take care of, um, let, let's proceed on that theory and, and see how far it gets. So it does seem like a trend. It seems like a wave. Um, and you're seeing it across a bunch of different states for any kind of public uh you know, public nuisance, really. Um, so I, I wonder how much you're going to see this stretched and applied to different scenarios. This seems like a stretch, though. You know, I, I don't disagree. And I, I think it's interesting, right? Uh, you know, say you've got a situation where uh, first responder has to respond uh, to a situation where, I don't know, someone's having a heart attack. Um, you know, <laughs> are you going to? Are you going to say, hey, you know, um, uh, cookie manufacturer or, or cheese manufacturer, uh, you know, you owe us for all of these uh, emergency uh, response calls to these these heart attacks that we had. Right now, I get what you're saying. You know, you're sort of dwelling on the slippery slope and that's ridiculous and it would never get there. But I think that's, you know, if you go back 10, 15, 20 years, um, I think people are saying the same thing about cigarette butt litter. You know, I mean, could you imagine telling your grandfather uh, that, you know, Philip Morris is getting sued for cigarette butt litter? I mean, he would, I, I would, my grandpa anyway, who uh, smoked Lucky Strikes until the day he died, um, would, would throw his head back and, and laugh. You would think that's hilarious. The one thing that I think is interesting about this particular case, and you mentioned externalities, th- what the city has done is um, pled, you know, an alternative, pled a fix, right? Use a biodegradable filter and the problem goes away. I think that's what makes it different than, you know, that case against Purdue Pharma, for example, um, which is all or nothing, right? I mean, you need to stop producing and selling this stuff. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, the fact that an alternative was produced and one that seems reasonable. I mean, I don't know how to make biodegradable cigarette filters, but I guess it's possible. Um, maybe that's what distinguishes this case from, you know, those unintended externalities cases that you mentioned. Yeah. And generally anytime a state um, through their prosecutors is, is basically trying to enact regulation via lawsuit, which is what this is, Right. Um, I'm always a bit skeptical because what it means is like we have this thing. It would never pass through the legislature because it's manifestly unpopular and probably um, unduly burdensome and people just wouldn't like it. So, you know, through the democratic means of enacting this policy, it's not going to happen. So we're just going to have our attorney general go after you for, you know, contrived tort theory. Um, Anytime I see that, I I am I'm a bit skeptical. I'm like, because what they want to do here is say, stop throwing cigarette butts on, on the ground, which makes total sense. And from a regulatory perspective, yeah, stop doing that. Um, and you could do that through taxes. You could find the people who do it. You could tax the cigarette companies into, like you mentioned, some type of biodegradable material, et cetera. Um, but if they were to do that, um, that would have to get through the legislature, which is not going to happen. So, you know, this is just uh, regulation through um, another arm, which, like I said, I'm always skeptical when I see that. Yeah. And I think it goes back to, again, you know, sort of what is the city's 
cities function as, you know, as the government, right? I mean, at its core, isn't government supposed to do certain things that we pay taxes for? Um, you know, I sweep the streets, for example, sweep the streets, man, sweep the streets. And so that's, I get it. It's a, it's a, it's a tough issue, but I think this is, this is sort of moving away from that oil spill example that I mentioned and a lot closer to those sort of things that we would think, um, seem, you know, are ridiculous. Thanks everyone. That's the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll talk to you two weeks from now. As always, if you have any thoughts on any of these stories, let us know what you think. Leave your comments below or feel free to email us.